Hey, good morning. Excited to be with you this morning. Always, always excited to be here and love teaching the Word of God. And we're going to wrap up today. This series we've been working on for four weeks. This makes the fifth. Talking about that most important question that anyone will ever ask you, as I'm going to do again today, and and that you will at some point have to ask other people that you love. Let me pray us in. Father God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Thank you for this marvelous series that we have spent the last month going through very difficult things, hard things to understand, hard things to teach, hard things to receive, but receive we must if we are born again in Christ. And so I just pray by your Holy Spirit, you give me the the focus and the words and the just the everything that's right about teaching your word today, that it may be well received by those who need to receive it and that you would work in their hearts and minds and spirits to to do just that for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. We started, I guess, five weeks ago and I called it the Speaking the Truth in Love series. When minding your own business violates scripture and has eternal consequences. There will people that will tell you when you want to talk to them about things of the Bible, talk to them about God, especially as you drill down and talk to them about Jesus Christ and their need for a Savior and all the things that as Christians we are commanded to do. It's not an option, it's a command as we're going to see as we go through. So what I did the first week was went back through the very basic fundamentals of Christianity. I'm going to mention them briefly. In case you're coming in for the first time, you pick this up and you've missed all of these. I want to make sure you at least understand where we've been coming from. And so just very briefly in that first one, I went through those basic things and I gave you eight or nine different verses and subject matters around what happened and all the why, things like that. And so we began with Genesis 3, talking about that Genesis 3 world. When Adam and Eve sinned and the world was broken and sin came in the world and broke everything. It broke mankind. It broke creation. It broke everything. And finally, although if the Genesis 6 didn't get any better, and in Genesis 6, we begin those chapters on Noah. And God said, I'm fed up with this. And he even said, I regret having created man. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's a strong statement from our Father God, our loving Father God. And we've talked about what love really means, and we'll do more of that coming up soon in another series. So sin broke the world. We also looked at the fact that in Genesis 3.15, that we call that the Proto-Evangelium, that God right there when he was cursing Adam and Eve and Satan, he spoke to Satan, and in that curse he said, I'm going I'm to send a Savior. I'm going to send one of her seed that will bruise, that you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. Some translations say crush your head. And so there right after the very, the first sin of the Bible, the first sin in the world, the sin in the history of mankind, God made a way. God promised a way thousands and thousands of years before. Why he waited, we don't know. We have no idea. Got so bad in Genesis 6 and on the chapters that follow Noah and the ark and the flood, he destroyed everything except for eight people, Noah and his family. And from that, he repopulated, and soon thereafter, they went right back out into their sin. And God was fed up with them, and God decided he would build and make a people for his own. And so through Abraham, the, the nation of the Jews, all the descendants of Abraham, uh, through those 12 tribes that came out of Jacob, he, he created a people for himself, a holy people for himself. 
The only reason to do that, so he would have a holy nation, a holy people for himself to love, communicate with, and they would love him back and worship him. And we know what happened there. But God sent a Savior. God promised, excuse me, God promised a Savior. He promised a Savior. And so we went on through all the way up to the New Testament. We, in the Old Testament, the last word of Malachi, Malachi 4, 6, the last word is the word curse. Curse. That God said, if this didn't change over here, and if God's people didn't, or people didn't begin to come back to him, repent, all the things that were going to happen. And some of that, uh, the, the message coming out of that last is also uh, eschatology, meaning things going on in end times. But the last word was curse. 400 years go by, the, the silence of the intertestamental period, the 400 years between Malachi 4.6 and Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. And in the first chapter of Matthew, what's going on? There's a promise. There's a blessing. The promise is coming true. The Messiah is being announced. And so we have those words between the angel and Joseph. And then we go on in, in Matthew 121, the angel speaking to Joseph. And remember, Joseph is about to put away Mary. And the angel said, don't do that. We have a, you have a, a son that's coming. He's, he's, um, he's conceived of the Holy Spirit, not of you and not of Mary. Mary's going to bear him. Mary's going to carry him. But this is a Holy Spirit. This is God inside Mary, incarnate, coming to save the world. And what do you say in Matthew 121? First of all, the word Jesus means Savior. He said, you'll have, she'll have a son, and you'll, name, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus means Savior. And the angel said, he will save his people from their sins. We've seen sin throughout the history of mankind, all the way back to the beginning of mankind, now as we enter into the New Testament, this time of Christ, and after coming up to our time, sin still prevails. Sin still dominates, but God made a way. Jesus comes into the world, and his forerunner, John the Baptist, in Matthew 3, was screaming in the wilderness, crying out there, crazy-looking man, and his message was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Flip the page in your Bible to Matthew 4. Jesus comes out of the, comes down from the mountains, out where Satan had tempted him. John the Baptist baptized him. Satan, the Holy Spirit, led Jesus up into the mountains, out in the wilderness, and Satan tempted him. We know that. Tempted him in every way, a lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And yet he was without sin. And so he could be our Savior because he resisted sin and he lived, and he learned, excuse me, he lived the perfect life. Jesus begins, he comes down after those temptations and begins his ministry. And the first words we hear out of his mouth are this. In Matthew 4, 17, the words are going to sound familiar. It's what John had been crying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are the exact same words his forerunner, John the Baptist, said. Because some people will say, well, you're talking about sin, and that's bad stuff, and bad people, and bad people sin, and it's murder, and stealing, and all kinds of really bad stuff, and that's sin. But I'm a, I'm a good person, a basically good person. I don't do that. That can't include me. And I gave you that verse that the Apostle Paul told the Roman church in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn over a few more pages in the book of Romans. In Romans 6.23, he went on to say to them this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's what God said back in Genesis 3. That's what he told Adam and Eve. He told Adam, the moment you eat of that fruit that I told you not to, the one thing I told you not to do, the world's broken, but also death comes in the world and you will surely die. And you remember, that's the line that Satan used to deceive Eve when he said, you won't surely, you won't die. So 
we come to this point, the, the most famous or well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. And if you've been around a church at all, or Sunday school at all, you'll know this verse in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, um, most trans some translations say begotten son, and I've talked to you about what the word begotten means, that whoever believes in him, believes in him, we spend a lot of time talking about that word believe, will not perish but have eternal life. He went on to say, you can see you can't grab a verse and pull it out of scripture. John 3 is a conversation with Nicodemus. And the question Nicodemus asked was what prompted this whole message series, how do you know or do you know or do you think that you're really born again in Christ? Nicodemus asked Jesus that question earlier in John 3 when Jesus said, you must be born again or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And Nicodemus said, what in the world does that mean? How can a man be born again? Go back up inside his mother's womb, come back out again, thinking of physical, literal birth. And Jesus said, no, no, that's not it. And he went on to explain what that meant. And we get into John 3, 16. And those are Jesus' words. Jesus speaking about himself. For God so loved the world that he gave me. And when they said the word gave, they didn't understand yet what he meant, that he's going to give his whole life, his entire life through the miserable, awful thing that he did. And that we have to believe in him. And believe doesn't mean that, yeah, I believe Jesus was a man, a teacher, a good man. Even the Jews believe that. Everybody believed that. In fact, the Bible teaches that even the demons believe. So we've talked about this believing in Jesus. What does that mean? Again, it doesn't mean just to believe he was a real person and a great teacher and must have been a man of God because he did miracles and stuff. And that's kind of what the Jews believed. And many still do today. But he wasn't Messiah. Oh, yes, he was. Oh, yes, he was. He said that he was. And if he wasn't Messiah, he was a liar and a dead man and died a foolish death a foolish death, who would be crucified just to make a point if you weren't the son of God because death did not overcome him. We know that his resurrection proved, proved again, beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was Jesus, Messiah, God incarnate, because now in his resurrection, which most of those didn't believe in, especially the, the religious people, and you'll see when Paul gets into teaching uh, those in Corinth and other places, that they were really, they were into gods and reasoning and stuff like that, but they didn't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So God, Jesus, conquered death through his resurrection. So that believing in Jesus is that whole thing that we understand. He is not Jesus the man, but Jesus God who became man in the flesh to be able to do these things that were prophesied in the Old Testament. He fulfilled all that prophecy and is God. And after his resurrection, ascended back into heaven today where he advocates for us, our high priest before God the Father. And that's a big hallelujah and amen right there. That's who Jesus is. And if you believe in Jesus, that's what that means, not just to believe that he exists. Now we get to what I consider the pivot point. The word of God kind of pivots on this one verse. Not John 3.16 as much as this, John 14.6, because Jesus Messiah said something that lit him up because he was speaking to Thomas and the others. And, and when the Jews heard this, they went ballistic and they, and they just kept plotting to kill him. Right? He would say things that would hint around that he was God, but then he finally said that he was God incarnate when he said, before Abraham was, I am. 
And that, that did it. They were done with that. But in John 14, 6, and you need to know this verse, and it will light up people against you quicker than any other verse in Scripture. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one gets to God. How? Except through me. Whoa. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God. No one gets to heaven. No one gets to, to the Father God to heaven. And all of those people believe there was a God, and they believe there was a heaven. At least most of them did. And Jesus said, I'm it. I'm the door. Remember the other passage? He said, I'm the door. That's one of the seven great I am passages I taught on and did a podcast series on a while back. I am. Jesus is the one. And he says he is the only one. And that's what sets the world against Christians. One of many things, but that above all, because it makes us sound like bigots and everything that they call us today. We're all serial racists. We're all bigots. We're haters. We're everything that we are not to a world that's lost. Why? Because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what the Apostle Paul said. The message of the cross is foolishness. And when Jesus said this, it lit him up. Because if he's telling the truth, they're in trouble, right? We're all in trouble unless we deal with what he said. Sorry. Uh, this is the Apostle Peter in Acts 17. I'm giving you part of that passage and in, in starts in verse 30. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to do what? Repent. Repent. Because he set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that man, capital M, Jesus. He set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, that meaning Jesus, his son, having furnished proof to all people that he was who he said he was, what? By raising him from the dead. Jesus' promise, God's promise, Jesus' perfect life, crucifixion, blood sacrifice satisfied that, the blood that didn't cover sins like it did in the Old Testament, the blood that cleanses us from our sin in the new covenant. Hallelujah to that. We moved on in the next lesson, the next part of this, and really two things here that I wanted to share with you. I'll summarize them again briefly, but they're so important. And if you're, again, if you're born again in Christ, I want to challenge you to think about how do you know? How do you know? Some people question their salvation. I want you to know with certainty if you're born again in Christ, you do not need to question your salvation. But you do need to up to the point where you are certain without any shadow of a doubt that you are born again in Christ. Here's the verse that was so pivotal in my life. I grew up a young Southern Baptist kid, walked the aisle, got dunked, and all the things that good Southern Baptist children do in, in that time of, you know, maybe 7, 8, 9, 10 to 12, whatever. And some are genuinely saved. And I thought I was, but if you look at the next decade of my life, it looks like hell. It does. It's ridiculous. And I'm ashamed of that. I'm ashamed of that. But I know that, as I shared my testimony in the book, you know, later in my life, in my early 20s, sitting in an apartment alone, the Holy Spirit showed up, and this is what happened. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. And remember, these were people who had received Christ, a church that was struggling because Corinth, and all these places, whether it was Ephesus and Greece and Macedonia and all these places in the in the uh, Europe and part of Asia where all the new churches were planted, these were pagans. These were pagans that got saved and, 
and all the pagans were still around them and all the pagan habits and the culture. And they're just trying to overcome that. And look, just, just when you get saved, everything doesn't change immediately. It's a process of, of letting go of some of those things that you've held on to all your life. Some people can drop them like that, and we just say praise God for that. For some of us, it's more of a process to understand more and more after we are saved. But when you were born again, there's a point in time. There's an instant in time when you are saved. Okay? Make no mistake about that. And so what, what the verse has meant so much to me that I teach all the time now, and you may hear it every time you hear me teach. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul said this. There's a sorrow according to the will of God, or in some translations, and I like the way this reads better, there's a godly sorrow, a godly sorrow that produces repentance without regret unto salvation. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, there's a godly sorrow or a sorrow according to the will of God that produces repentance, repentance, that changing of your mind, that thinking differently so you'll end up behaving differently and all that stuff that goes, whoa, I've been thinking about this all wrong. Repentance without regret, that you no longer look back on that sin and miserable life, even if you thought it was fun. Most of us that parted our way through college and all the stupid things that we did, we thought that was fun. It was great fun. We're having a good time. And those people, Christians and people knocking on our doors and stuff, they weren't having fun. We're having all the fun. And yeah, there were hangovers and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, we're having a good time. It was fun. And you Christians don't have any fun. This verse is a life changer, and it will help you assess if, in fact, you really were born again in Christ. There's a godly sorrow that produces repentance without regret unto salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This godly sorrow that produces repentance, I believe, is that point when you understand and you are broken, contrition. If you'll read Psalm 51, where it was David's prayer after that sin with Bathsheba and the baby dying and having her husband Uriah killed, that's the most repentant, contrite prayer in all of the Bible. And I strongly recommend you go there and read it. It will it'll break your heart because you'll identify with him. Maybe not those same sins, but you will know what you have done and who you have offended not other people. You may have offended plenty of people. I know I did. But that is, that's not the point. The point is the offenses between you and God. You've offended God. And so this godly sorrow that produces repentance and salvation and without regret, that's the repentance. That's the point when you say, look, I need a Savior. I can't do this. I have screwed it all up. I've screwed it all up. And I need a Savior. That's what Paul was talking about. And if you are born again in Christ, he challenged those that were Christians. And this is another key verse in that same book, 2 Corinthians, over in chapter 13, verse 5. He said this. He said, test yourselves. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. He said it two different ways. Test yourselves and examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith, to see if you really are born again. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Well, how do you do that? That's what we're going to use to close this out. Christian, I want to challenge you to do that. Test yourselves, examine yourselves according to the word of God. And I'm going to give you a quick overview on that to see if you really are born again so that in full confidence of that, you can talk with other people and you can ask them the same hard question and maybe share part of your own testimony. No one wants to be talked to and talked down to and preached to judgmentally, but they need to know, you know, how God saved you 
and that you were just as lost as they are, that, that your sin stinks just as bad as theirs does. We're not judging people. I'm not the judge. God made no Christian a judge over other people. Jesus Christ alone will judge. That's what he said. He will judge people. Those two judgments that will happen at the end of time. He will judge people, not you and me. You are not the Holy Spirit. I am not the Holy Spirit. And I'm quite sure that at some points earlier in my zealous Christian life, I may have come across that way. Perhaps I did even in my own family, with my wife or my children or something. I am not the Holy Spirit and I am not the judge. Mine is to live and love and speak the truth in love, which is what this series has been all about. All right. And so we wrapped it up, part of the third and, and all of last time, with four hard evidences, four hard evidences, evidences. I could say that fast three times. Four hard evidences that we really are born again. Well, how do I know what that is? It's pretty simple. I go look at the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And so these are... You, you can't argue with. They are matter of fact and they are absolute. Do we have them all right away as soon as we're born again? No, absolutely not. Again, Paul said we are being saved. Now, don't ever misunderstand that verse and that passage, meaning it's a process that you do this till you get to your salvation, because that sounds like works and it's not about works. We are saved by, remember what Ephesians 2 says, for, for grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, not of yourself. For grace, we've been saved by faith, by faith, not of ourselves. There's no works involved. Now, once you're born again in Christ, it's all about works, not about works before, as some denominations and religions teach. It is not. You cannot do anything to make you make God love you more. You can't or not like you anymore. You can't. You can't do that. Sin is sin. It all stinks. And that's what needs to be confessed and we repent from. And we're saved. Once we're saved on the other side of the cross, it's all about works. It's about works. It's about, and I'm, I'm including in that, living and loving and all the things that look like Jesus. And so I'm going to give you these four quickly as we wrap this up. And the first one, of course, is love. Lest I segue spent too much time, let me just make this comment. Jesus Christ was all about love, right? For God so loved the world and God was too. God so loved the world. The manifestation, the ultimate expression of God's love is one thing, Jesus Christ. So for those who like to latch on to God as love and teach and preach that without the full counsel of God, you are a heretic and you are misleading people. And you need to stop that. And I'll speak out against that because God said to and he said to call out false teachers. That is nonsense. God is love and his ultimate expression was he sent Jesus Christ. But trust me, that is not where it stops, and that is not how we define the love of God, that, oh, God is love, and, you know, just all the wonderful things, just like his grace and mercy, we take those uh, because we like those, but we, we don't like the fact that uh, his, his anger over sin must be satisfied, and, and, and his, he demands justice, and he's an angry God at times, and all these things that are absolutely the personality of God, the Father, because we're taught that. We're taught that there are many attributes of God, and clearly love is one of those, and it's mentioned first, and it's mentioned as the first fruit of the Spirit. Love is incredibly important, but it's understanding what that love means and what it looks like and how we practice that. And here's what Jesus said to define that. 
This is a tough one. Now, I'm speaking to Christians now. I'm speaking to those of you who have, have examined, as Paul said, and, quote, passed the test, if you will. These fruits should be coming evident in your life, not all at once, but over time, a process as you're in your word, in word, in his word, growing in Christ. You will not grow in your faith. You will not grow in Christ without getting in the word of God. You just won't. It's not possible. It's not possible. In John 13, 34, Jesus speaking to his disciples in some of the last words before he departed, before he went to be crucified and then ascended into heaven, he said this, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Well, you know what? That's not new. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the law. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Well, wait a second. If he said it's a new, and I'm telling you that it's in the Old Testament, it's in the law, you love one another, love your neighbor, those are in the law. That's not new stuff. Well, wait a minute, Walter. Yeah. Wait a minute. I hadn't finished the verse. That you love one another. Here's the kicker. Even as I have loved you. Well, there it is. Even as I have loved you, that you also ought to love one another. Now, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing, and a lot of people do not, do not understand this. I would say most people, including Christians, do not. All the one another verses, and Jesus used a, no, a number of times to love one another. It's used in other um, uh, books, epistles by Apostle Paul, Peter, James, the brother Jesus. The one another is Christian love to other Christians. Believe it or not, it is. It's Christians loving other Christians. This is not loving the world. This is not loving your enemy or loving your neighbor. No, no, this is this is loving one another. And I talked a lot about that, how hard that can be to love other Christians. Sometimes we have more difficulty loving Christians than anyone else. I know I've been guilty of that, and it's sin. It's sin, and I had to confess, and still do, because sometimes I wrestle with that. But Jesus' command to love one another, even as I have loved you, is Christian to Christian. And here's the reason why. Because if we did that within the church, more people would be drawn to the church, not running from the church. More people would be drawn to you as, as a Christian rather than trying to avoid you. When we love one another, when we see that I love people within the body of Christ and it's a great fellowship and a place you want to be, they're drawn to that. They're drawn to that. <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. But that was the first one. The second one is to forgive as we've been forgiven. So love as he loved, forgive as we've been forgiven. And we, we looked at a very long passage. But the one that I settled on with that, that left you with that one is the most important at the cross. In Luke 23:33, when Jesus, being crucified with the criminals on either side of him, said, look down at what was going on. The soldiers who had just nailed him to the cross had beaten him mercilessly, had put this terrible, awful, big crown of thorns into his skull, into his head. And he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He'd already gone through a long discourse on forgiveness with Peter when Peter said, well, do I forgive somebody seven times? Thinking that'd be, that'd be great. Not just once, but seven times. Remember, Jesus said, no, 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 no. Uh, but 70 times seven. Well, it didn't mean 490 either. But the one that gets our attention more than anything else is when Jesus looked out of these people that were just murdering, crucifying, brutalizing him, torturing him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Mm. Such a forgiveness. How can we do that? The answer is we can't. It's not possible, except for one thing. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, he brings that capacity to love as Christ loved, 
forgive as he forgave. The third one is this. Serve in obedience to his example and command. And in that, I shared with you again in John 13, this is all the last supper, the last time he was going to be with them together in closed doors. We know that as, as they were having this meal, we call it the Lord's Supper. It was having this meal, it was Passover, Passover meal that had been prepared. He got up, he took off his outer garment, put the towel around himself, and he goes around with a basin of water, and he washes their nasty, smelly, stinking feet. <laughs> and, of course, Peter objects to that. We know that exchange. He said this in John 13, 5, and in verse 12. He said, if I then... The Lord and teacher, and he, you call me Lord and teacher, and he said, you're right. I am your Lord. I am the Lord, and I am your teacher. I have washed your feet. Here's the command. You ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. You see, Jesus is pointing out examples. These are examples of forgiving. These are examples of loving. These are examples of serving. These are his examples and his words. They are commands. They are not suggestions. They're not suggestions. And then the very last one we talked about was testify. That as Christians, if we truly are born again in Christ, we need to testify about that. I shared with you some verses about Jesus testifying about himself and how the Jews objected to that. There are many other testimonies that I could give you throughout the New Testament, wonderful testimonies. And we, should, we look at some of those. And all of this, by the way, is available. Uh, the, the videos from all these on YouTube and the website, onlyjesus.life. They're available in the podcast on our Anchor Spotify podcast, uh, Walter and Only Jesus. And they're also available through that website. They're all there for you. Audio, video, and then I'll post up all the written notes. So we have it in a blog form as well, because it's important. And I want you to have it, which have these verses, these messages, so that you can go back and remind yourself, read them, learn this, study and learn this stuff. Because the last one is really important to testify, to testify. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 107, a great verse I learned many years ago. He said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. If you're born again in Christ, we have a fierce enemy, and you know that. If you're lost, you have a fierce enemy, a fierce enemy. He's doing everything he can just to keep you right where you are. If you're born again in Christ and you know it, say so. Say so. Let somebody know. Be ready to give that reason. Give that reason for the, the joy and the hope that's in your life if it is there. Don't walk around like some sourpuss, complaining, whining Christian like I do sometimes. Nobody wants part of that. Who wants that Savior? If that's what his people look like, always condemning, always criticizing, and all the things that Christians are known to do, which Jesus did none of, just do what he said. Love as he loved, forgive as we have been forgiven. Oh, my goodness. Serve by his example of serving and then testify. Christian, I hope this means a lot to you, and I hope it's been helping you to confirm this difficult question. How do you know that you're really born again in Christ? And so, friend who is uh, still not taking this in, still rejecting it, doesn't believe it, lost, whatever, however you like to refer to yourself, maybe it's just, it's just you. 
and you reject Christianity, you reject Christians, and you reject Christ, maybe because of Christians, I don't know why. What I do know is this. If you have stumbled across this, it is not accidental. It is the work of the Holy Spirit because I'm just a messenger, and I may be the last messenger that the Lord sends to you before it's your time because all of us have a time. I would be delighted if the Lord would take me home right now and I didn't even finish his sentence. Because like Paul said, you know, if I'm still in the body, I'm away from the Lord. But apart from the body, after I go home, I go home. You see, I know where I'm going. The minute I drop dead, I know where my spirit is going. Absolutely confirmed. Jesus said that too. Do you know? Do you know where you're going? You're going to die. All of us die. 100% of us are going to die. That's a, a fact of life, and it's not a very pleasant one for some people. I think it's wonderful because I know being born again in Christ, my body will die, but my spirit will go straight to heaven. And by the way, your spirit's going somewhere. Your body's going to die like the rest of us, whether you're buried, cremated, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Your spirit, the moment you die, will be in paradise or heaven with Jesus, just as he told the thief on the cross, or you will be in hell the holding place for hell right now called Hades. So my question is this, who do you believe? Who do you trust? And knowing that you're going to die, you are, where are you going? What do you believe about that? I could say I hope you're right, but I know that you're not. And so my plea for you is to understand that God sent me here as a messenger to share his love and this good news. Maybe for the last time, I don't know. But why wait and find out the hard way? Just receive him today. As Spurgeon said, make certain your election and receive Christ today. Receive him today. I pray that you will, for Christ's sake. Father God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Thank you for the words you've given me through this whole series. It's been a powerful series. It's been a hard series. Lord, I pray that those who are born again in Christ are certain of their salvation so that they will live and look and love more like Jesus, our Savior. We want to live like him. We want to look like him. And more than anything else, we want to love like him. And again, I beg and plead, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, you're convicting even now the hearts of someone listening to this, watching it, however they're receiving it, that they would, that they would drop to the knee, repent of their sin, and confess their need for a Savior and receive that they believe who Jesus is and receive him as Savior today. And angels will rejoice because they always do. They always do. We thank you for that. And we thank you mostly for our wonderful, wonderful Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's his name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Have a great week. To learn more about how you can become a Christian or grow in your walk with the Lord and receive freely of all the biblically-based content we have created or donate to help keep this ministry going strong, go to onlyjesus.life. That's onlyjesus.life.